Welcome to Living and Marcelo's Criminology Podcast, a podcast hosted by Marcelo Aevi from the University of Lausanne, Switzerland, and Living Powells from Ghent University, Belgium. We aim to draw a map of the state of criminology across Europe through the words of contemporary criminologists. How is criminology defined and taught? Which are the main lines of research? Which are the main schools of thought in each country? These and many other questions are answered here by fellow researchers who share their vision on the development of criminology in their countries from its beginnings to the second decade of the 21st century. If you want to know and compare their stories, stay tuned. Today we are interviewing Lodo Walgrave. Lodo Walgrave is Professor Emeritus at the Catholic University of Leuven. He is an internationally well-known and excellent scholar in restorative justice research and he played also a pioneering role in studies of juvenile delinquency in Belgium. He was at the forefront of the Interactionist School in Belgian Criminology. Lodo Walgrave received the ESC Lifetime Achievement Award in 2008. This interview was conducted on the 14th of March 2023. Hello, uh, Lode Valgrave, or as you are uh, well known in the English speaking world, Lode Walgrave. Thank you for uh, joining us in, uh, in our podcast. It's really a pleasure to have you here. It's a pleasure to be there. Uh, hello, welcome, uh, Lord Wardhav. Thank you for joining us as well in our podcast, and uh, we really appreciate you making the time for uh, answering all our uh, questions. I would like to start with one general question we always ask our uh, interviewees, and that is perhaps a difficult one. How would you define criminology as you uh, see it in, in your country of origin? So, um, a personal helicopter view. Well, def defining criminology currently is more complicated than defining it, let's say, uh, when I began. Uh -huh. uh, when I began, I became um, an assistant to a professor uh, in criminology who was in fact a psychiatrist, Professor Delart. Uh, at that time, in fact, criminology was the study, what we call the homo criminalis, mean meaning the person who commits crimes, how can we understand such a person and how can we treat him? That was, in fact, at that time, the definition. Of course, we know all that it is now very, very a broader concept. And if you look at the programs, you see now in the International Congresses of Criminology, it goes from um, uh, the, the uh, human rights issues, uh, interrogation systems, the police of juveniles, uh, restorative justice, prevention of uh, sexual delinquency, and so on. It's such a broad thing, also about the, the sentencing practices and so on, prison conditions. Uh, so criminology is now very broad. And I think, I, I don't know if I could now currently um, make a, a firm definition i would say criminology is the field it is a field it's not a discipline eh? you know we i think we agree on that 
Criminology is a field of research and practice where the normative meets the descriptive and the explanatory. Uh, uh, of course, the hardcore is the, the legal norms, the penal law and, and so on, but also deviance in other norms, they are more or less part of criminology. You have some gray zones around the hardcore of criminology. Um, and if we look then at, at this field, we look at the one who is transgressing the laws and the norms and so on, but also on the system and on the persons who are working against these transgressions. So I think this, it, was it not Dixon who in the 70s, 1970s or 80s, after the first wave of critical criminology, who said that, in fact, instead of criminology, we, would we should better speak of controlology. I find it very difficult. You could say the most easy uh, definition is the one who you know, I'm sure you know, so criminology is what criminologists do. Uh, <laughs> and who are the criminologists? Those we can meet on the international conferences on criminology. So it's a very broad field, but sometime, somewhere it's about norm enforcement, norm making and control and enforcement and, and also the, the, the persons who can arrest them and, and so on. I think I cannot def define it better now. Would there be a better one? I don't think so, because as you say, it, it is a field and I mean, I know the discussion between scholars who argue for it as a discipline or it is a field. As a field, I think it's much richer and of course more difficult to um, give clear boundaries, but I mean, we yeah. do not need any boundaries, I guess. You know, maybe John Braithwaite, he, he once wrote an article on the tents. Criminology should be a tent instead of a building. So he was a, he was very opposed to the idea that you have fixed buildings. That means also that within the building there is a discipline, there is methodology, spe special methodology, special networks, and so on. Whereas a tent is something you can you can break it up, but can you replace it? And I think that is partly applicable to to criminology. Uh, when I began on, in criminology, for example, cybercrime, even cyber didn't exist. Uh, uh, restorative justice, I never heard about it. Situational prevention, it didn't exist. Um, and you name it. So the world changes, the situation changes, the problems change. And I think this field also becomes narrower and then sometimes very broad. And we have also to look so I cannot speak about youth delinquency if I cannot speak about school and school systems. Far beyond only the young delinquents in the schools. Is that criminology? I don't know. I don't think so. But I need it in criminology, the insight in the school system, uh, for example, to understand some etiological processes uh, and so on. Uh, well, yeah, that's criminology. <laughs> <laughs> I think in, in Belgium we have seen a very um, special development. Um, when you look at the history of Belgian criminology, you see the, the schools of criminology develop from the, the classical and um, especially positivist traditions. How um, 
was this development met in general? Uh, the radical change towards the more broader sociological view uh, mm-hmm. at the time, because um, this is something our listeners will very much be interested in. Uh, everybody knows the history of, of criminology, especially in Belgium, because of the old schools and, and KTLab, but it's, of course, much more. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about this uh, development in the 60s and 70s? Yeah. When I began, as I told you, I was a, an assistant to a professor, a psychiatrist, Delard, and he was an absolute um, uh, successor of De Grave. Etienne de Grave was his hero. Eh? And you know, de Grave is also an iconic figure in European criminology or in world criminology, even eh? uh, a psychiatrist. Uh, when I began, I believed in what we now would call clinical criminology. My ambition at that time was to understand better the origins, the etiology of youthful criminals. That was my ambition. And to find the uh, uh, the passepartout in the treatment of such kind of, of problems. Uh, I considered young delinquents as, well, socially ill, you could say. And with, uh, that, that, that was it. Now... A certain moment, my professor, Delard, and his first assistant, who was the Batselier, Lieven must certainly have heard about him. I don't know whether Marcelo ever heard about him. They found that criminology should be, should have its own full-blown program. When at the beginning, criminology was only a special program for lawyers, psychologists, uh, and other persons, and criminology was considered a kind of auxiliary science for the practice of penal law. Eh? Let me say. Uh, and they found that criminology should have a, a complete program, which was accepted, I think it, it was in 65, in 1965. Of course, we needed, at the same time, more professors, because there was more teaching uh, and for the first time, we had also uh, professors who were full-time professors in criminology. Before, Delart, for example, uh, Van der Voorde, at that time, they were in fact, they had a practice elsewhere and they, they added, in fact, criminology at that time, that was some wise men, men, uh, uh, practitioners, and they learned us about their experiences and their wisdom. The new professors, sir, younger, they had another approach. And in Leuven, for example, there was Lode van Utrieven. You know at least the name, first more than the name. Um, um, Lode van Utrieven was a young sociologist, and he brought in the tradition of. Uh, uh, of research, empirical research, for the first time. We, I first, and also, uh, he was the one who brought in the literature on the beginning critical criminology. And suddenly, we changed. And I witnessed, together with Tony Peters, another uh, well-known uh, name uh, at that time, Tony was a sociologist, I was a psychologist, uh, psych- uh, psychologist at that time, we witnessed really a struggle between the old clinical 
Etienne de Grave School, if we may say so, and then the new critical criminology, sociology, so, society-oriented uh, approach. And um, uh, you can say that in Leuven, certainly at that time, critical criminology take the, take the upper hand, took the upper hand. At that time also, we had the first systematic empirical research. Was it in, by the end of the 60s, at the beginning of the 70s, the first time the Minister of Justice launched an inter-university program, research program, in prisons. And that was, it was not Delart who took the lead, but it was Van Utrive for Leuven took the lead. At that time also, you had also Patrick Hebrechts in Ghent, Chris Eriaerts in, uh, in Brussels, in the VUB. Van Utrive took the lead, and he also influenced very strongly the Belgian Society for Criminology. And I remember, and I have noticed it, the Belgian Congresses on Criminology in 74 in Liège and 77 in Ghent, where the Belgian criminology really uh, chose for a kind of conflict model in relation with the authorities, with the criminal justice system and so on. At that time, so in the beginning then, when we were, uh, the young professors that we were, we were very critical towards this this system, and so criminology became also conquered its autonomy. It was not longer an auxiliary science. Uh, we had our own approach, and of course, we were already a full-blown program at the university. We were integrating the faculty of law in Leuven, but even within the faculty, we were really confronted with opposition because we were opposed to the criminal justice system when we had also old-fashioned professors in penal law. After a while, you saw that criminology has got its, its, its position. Uh, uh, how does that come? I think it's several developments. First, security problems in society became important on the political agenda. 80s, the 90s, there were some politicians, ministers, who were interested in some criminological input. And so we gave some authority uh, at that time. And maybe I've, I'm flattering myself now, but I think that what Tony, Cyril Feynout, Lieven Dupont, I, Patrick Eberecht, in, in, uh, in, again, but I'm speaking now from Leuven, but also Patrick Eberecht, you even uh, later, uh, Chris Eliard, what we offered was of a reasonable quality. So we had really something to say. So we had a new relation after this very oppositional uh, role. We gradually were recognized as, well, a university a field, a specialization that had, or, or an expertise that had to be taken seriously. Not only within the faculty, because we attracted money from, from, the, from the outside, which was very important for the faculty, that they got prestige. Uh, we had some influence on policymaking, and we attracted increasingly more and more students. Uh, 
And finally also, since 20 years probably, uh, criminology has all, also more its position now in the fundings for uh, FWO, in the Fund for Scientific Research. Before, when I began and I had to apply for fundamental research in the Fund for the, in the FWO, as we call it, we have to go through the, the, the committee from law or the committee of sociology or psychology. Criminology did not have its own commission. Since 20 years now, I see that my younger colleagues, uh, they can apply in the and have their own commission where the project can be judged now on its own uh, specific merits. So I think now criminology is, of course, is a, is a broad field with several opinions, several different approaches, opposite approaches, but it has a position now. Uh, and I think um, together with Tony, but uh, he's deceased already, of course, but uh, I may be one of the oldest witnesses <laughs> how this whole change happens. Um, even in the, in the housing is a great difference. When I began, there was Delart, there was the Batselier, and there was me. That was the staff of criminology. And there's some professors who came to teach something. Currently, in Leuven alone, there must be about 80 persons. And when we, the first year that we had a full curriculum in the first bachelor, we would say now at that time it was candidature. Uh, first year we had three students. Now it is more than three, four hundred. I don't know. And in the criminology discipline in Flanders alone, all together, must be more than thousand students. I would say Kent. Yeah. The most you are the most in Kent. Still, uh, I think it's about the same, but it's it's huge. It's, it's like it's you, four or five hundred yeah. new students every year. You alone, <laughs> and we have uh, yeah. So it's it has its position now, and I flatter myself by saying we did it well. <laughs> uh, but of course, the circumstances were there, and uh, the attention for the security problems and so on were there. Um, yeah. Yeah, Lord, this is a very, very interesting um, history of how the the discipline or the field uh, uh, developed in Belgium. Uh, at the same time, before we started uh, the interview, we were just discussing informally, and you were talking also of the bureaucratization of of the work, eh? of the yeah. amount of paperwork. Uh, how did that happen? That is not only criminology. I think the university as my first special money I've got to organize uh, uh, a seminar when in Belgium the new law on probation was voted, Criminology Leuven, I was still an assistant, organized a seminar uh, uh, for uh, lawyers, judges and so on. We needed special money. Well, I just went to the rector himself uh, I took the phone. Altogether, Leuven at that time was 6,000 students. Uh, the, the Flemish part uh, uh, was 6,000 students. So we could go to the rector. And I went to the rector to ask for some money. And the rector looked at me and he said, uh, 
How much would that cost? I don't remember anymore. Let's say 1,000 francs eh, for some coffee and uh, stencils because and post stamps because there was no internet, of course. And he took a, a box of cigars and he gave me 1,000 francs. And he asked me, is that enough? I think, yes, I think it's enough. Okay. I didn't have to sign anything. Uh, uh, I just left his room, his office, with 1,000 francs in my pocket. There was about, uh, uh, say, 10%, uh, no, more than 10% of my monthly <laughs> income. I had not to justify anything. Well, that's, there was a trust. There was confidence. The rector trusted that if one of his people came to ask money, well, he will use it uh, correctly. That was the, that's how universities worked at that time. You know, now if you want to buy one book, how many forms you need to comply, and, and, and so on and so on. Eh? So it has, and it was also in criminology. And we had to change the, in, when I decided to stop, uh, in 2002, 2003, um, it was after we decided, the, the, the new rector decided that at the university every year should not be of more than 10 different courses. So we had to propose to the university authorities the new program on criminology and every year not more than 10 uh, uh, separate courses. We, we worked days and nights and weeks and months to finally make a program. We entered that program and it was approved. Uh, but then the year after said, yeah, yeah, sorry, but now we will have the bachelor and master structure. You have to, we have to redo it, but now uh, uh, for bachelor and master. And it must be internationally and it must be more comparable to Ghent than to Brussels and so on. So we had to start again. After one year, uh, and that was for me, I, st I still, for I never forget it. I said, now it's enough. I, I, I chaired one of these commissions for the first thing, said, it's, I stop it. It's, I stop it. It's enough. Uh, uh, and I had the opportunity to do it. Uh, but I think you all know it, how the bureaucracy is killing your creativity. The, the time. If now I just finished an, 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 a book review this morning for the Netherlands States for Criminology. Before I would have read it on uh, and written it a few, let's say, ten hours altogether. If I would read it carefully, now I had a full week to read it to enjoy <laughs> the ideas uh, and so on, to think of it, uh, to read something else, just to compare what I. Uh, and to compose a book review, just a book review. It makes your review much better, of course. I hope so. And, I think so. Yeah. I'm sure that what is certain that um, all what I have published since I'm retired is much more quoted uh, elsewhere mm -hmm. than what I've written before. Because I to take the, mm -hmm. could take the time. There's no time pressure anymore, or much less. Yeah. Uh, I think 
Yes, please go. I think we all um, recognize this issue of time pressure and how it really can be um, killing creativity. You mentioned um, that you have the experience or that you personally define your best publications as the publications you wrote after you retired. But there is also something else I would like to stress, and I think that's not just for Belgium, but for most of the European, uh, at least uh, continental countries, we all wrote in our native language. And I think we had in Belgium a very, well, I should say less um, favored position, because if I can say so, you had some influential work on, on the causes of juvenile delinquency with your uh, development and your work on the theory of societal vulnerability, which was written in, in, in Dutch. Um, at the time, I think it was in the 1980s, if you would have published this in English, that would have been way before all the English scholars. And because we wrote in our native language, I think our influence on European criminology is a little bit less than the Anglo-Saxon dominance, if I can, as a personal opinion. That's, that's you, you, I, I'm, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. Uh, uh, as you look at the rank orders of the universities worldwide, you have several rank orders and we do not have to take them too seriously. But what we see is that always American, English, Australian uh, universities are the top 10 are almost always only English speaking, native English speaking universities. Do you really believe it is because they are all more clever than we are? No, it's simply because they have more access to the international sources. They can write much more easily. For me, it's it's absolutely evident. Uh, of course, in the meantime, we can have this interview in English, uh, two Belgians and a Swiss. Uh, so we are used to, but still, if we could speak in our mother tongue, it would be easier. Yeah, of course. Let, let's admit that. Uh, yeah, uh, sure. uh, I remember I was invited by Nils Christie in Oslo. And of course, because I did not speak any word of Norwegian, and they didn't speak any word of Dutch, it was in English. I was the only non-Norwegian with the students, and uh, Nils and I. And at that moment, it was good, it was pleasant, it was a good discussion. But at that moment, Nils had to say something that he could not say to, to his students, uh, explain something, and he did not, even Nils, who was very familiar with English, uh, he, and suddenly he switched to Norwegian, to his students. Of course, I didn't understand the word, but I saw his body language. And suddenly I saw another Niels Christie with gestures, with humor, with, with, uh, and, and I saw the students in another, it was, yeah, that is what happens to us. We are the poor ones, you know. <laughs> <laughs> now, but um, some international colleagues appreciate it, and they really understand that it is difficult. And they, but some others do not. Th that is so. Uh -huh. uh, 
And I think, you know, my, my recent field in the last 20 years was especially in restorative justice, yeah. as you know. Uh, um, there, there is another atmosphere, mm -hmm. climate in this field of restorative justice scholars. They are more, I do not want to be too offensive for the others, of course, but uh, there is more respect and they do more, yeah, there's more effort to understand and to give you the floor and to give you the, the chance to explain. Uh, I think so. I'm not 100%, but that, that's my f feeling. And we, that, yes, that's a threshold we have to take. But, and maybe I sometimes um, uh, uh, wonder whether the European Society for Criminology could not pay attention more to that issue. I don't know how. Simply do not how, but of course Europe, and certainly the continental Europe, there are no native speakers of the continental Europe, and that's typical for European criminology and for this society, that we all do the effort to take to use what sometimes they say second-hand English, or second-brain English. I don't know how to say, uh, but if something could be done to to ease the publications in English. Also the, the European Journal of, of, uh, of Criminology. I cannot, under, I, I, I would not understand, I would not see another possibility but publishing in English, I know. But to make it easier for non-native speakers to publish in that journal, to give some facilities for the editing of the language of the first. We do it, you know, I am in the International Journal of Restorative Justice. And sometimes there also we, we, we get submissions where we think that's interesting, it's this word, but the language. It's, we, we cannot do it like that. Uh, uh, but it's so, it's so expensive to exactly. ask some, a, a, a language editor to, to work at it. I, I I usually try not to give my opinions because you are the guest, and we are, but as you ask, I, I see three possibilities there. One is the development of in, uh, artificial intelligence. So if you compare the translations that uh, were made simply using uh, Google, not to mention it, uh, 15 years ago or 10 years ago and now, the quality has changed a lot. Of course, this needs improvement. So. Yeah, yeah. I think artificial intelligence will oh, solve yeah. this a little bit. The second one is also that um, many universities are uh, supporting their researchers and, and, and putting people to help them publish in English because the universities also want the citations for their indexes. Absolutely. And then there's another thing that I mentioned, and as you mentioned, the International Journal of Restorative Justice, just before you change the, the name, we published an article with Claudia Campistol and a couple of colleagues about the um, justice system in uh, Egypt. Huh? And it was very funny because one of the co-authors, she was a former, she's a, an English native speaker with a diploma from Cambridge, I think, or Oxford. And we got <laughs> a comment of one reviewer that our English should be improved. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> so this, oh. Oh. She, she was outrageous and I think this goes 
in, in two ways. I mean, the ones that write, we are not native English speakers, but the ones that read are also not native English speakers. And, and so this interaction is, is creates some confusion. And no. then the moment you don't get something, ah, probably they are not native English speakers. So it's a quite a complicated um, issue. Sure, but sure. The, the only advantage, if you talk about continental Europe, is that as for all of us, it is a foreign language. We are all in this sort kind of uh, equality situation uh, because we are all talking a different language. Another solution that we use in Switzerland in the federal uh, the federal level is that the person who speaks French speaks in French, and the one who speaks uh, German answers in German and talks in German, and the one with Italian the same. But this is not for everyone. It's in a few cities. If you go to Bien, for example, Bill Bien near Bern, this can happen also at a shop. But um, yeah, not everyone is uh, bilingual, and, and now the English English is taking a lot of force everywhere. Eh? But I see the point that you raise. I think that maybe artificial intelligence will give us the yeah, uh, yeah. But maybe another possibility would be that. Uh, for example, and then we can switch to another subject, of course. But uh, not that also in the European Journal, they give also summaries in at least one or two other languages. For example, in French, uh -huh. which is maybe the second most important language in Europe. Uh, eventually, we could think of Spanish or, or German. But small summaries, at least that... You, at that at that moment you, you could you could motivate people to do the effort to read it the real stuff uh, uh, maybe it could be something but of course the, the 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 most recent issues of the european journal are already that thick yeah but th that that is an exception <laughs> there was three or four issues yeah, yeah be because um, yeah there was at one moment you know, with this idea that uh, online first, online first, online first, yeah. um, there was a, a lot of, uh, it was a, a huge backlog. There were other small issues there, but they are not important that uh, led to having a, a very um, a, a very heavy backlog. And so we had to discuss with uh, Sage and finally we reached an agreement. And now since, uh, since we have, um, Kyle uh, Treiber as, um, as the new editor, she's taking care of all these um, uh, articles that were already uh, accepted but not published. And so we had these very thick issues. It will yeah. not be the same in the future. Although, okay. although we will probably never go back to the issues that we saw maybe 15 years ago, eh? right. the, the, the first ones, uh, let's say, because it's, yeah, the... There are a lot of uh, articles being submitted, and although the, re the rejection rate is uh, relatively high, um, a lot of people want to publish in the journal. And well, of course, it's it's on the European continent is the most I think the maybe the the most prestigious journal for the moment of criminology in English on the European continent. Yes, I would say yes. Yeah, yeah. So um, so that's good and. Also, there is also this movement towards open access. Eh? And yeah. so once you publish in open access, then you could perfectly, with, uh, without inf uh, infringing any law, translate 
to your to your own native language, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then publish saying this uh, uh, this was originally published under a common a Creative Commons license, blah blah blah, and this is also a potential solution that you first yeah. publish in the in the journal and then. If it is yeah. open access, then you make uh, a version in the yeah. native language. Okay, yeah. There was another thing that you mentioned that I found particularly interesting. You said, when I started restorative justice, I never heard about it. Um, uh, situational crime prevention, uh, situational theories, I never heard about it. You mentioned a third one, I will remember it. If we take, we will go to restorative justice because, of course, it's um, one feeling which you are one of the popes. Eh? But about um, the situational approach, eh? how was it received? How how did it it arrive? Because you 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 saw that eh? situational prevention. I wonder whether it really penetrated systematically well on the European continent. I wonder, but of course, as a theory, I teach situational prevention because I was also in my time. I did also teach prevention. Eh? Uh, so I read about it and uh, and so on, and I I try to see, for example, in Brussels or in Antwerp, in some bigger cities in Belgium, whether or not they had some ideas about it, and whether or not they did it consciously, or they implemented some prevention strategies that we could see as uh, uh, situational prevention. But as a, a full-blown strategy, I don't think that it has ever broken through here. Did it? In Switzerland, I... yes. Oh, In yeah. Switzerland, oh, yeah. yeah. For example, the, the heroin prescription programs that you also had in, uh, in Belgium. Eh? These are what? clearly, I mean, it's harm reduction for drugs, but it's situational crime prevention also for... Um, for the part of crime, eh? uh, yeah, but yeah. I see what you mean. Sometimes it's related to um, to persons. Of course, in, yeah. in in Switzerland, with the influence of Martin Kilias, who um, who was very he was very fond of that theories. We were all influenced by him, and it's true that um, if you want practical solutions, uh, you can find uh, quite a, a few lines of work. But I I feel this this reluctance that you mentioned eh? in some even when you publish sometimes they say I am not a fan of situational theories it, it was more difficult eh? no I don't think so I, I I was not I was not reluctant against situational prevention only it was not my speciality okay. uh, uh, I I had some interesting uh, even Paul Ponsage for example. I remember that he was interested in that, and I think Paul had rather good contacts with police. I think it was a subject of his of contacts with the police. But of course, you have situational prevention as a you could say a theory and a theoretically well thought through practice, and you have some intuitive situational prevention as we all do. Uh, uh, when we go out in the late in the night, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, it's uh, and of course Martin Kilias, indeed, I remember that in Belgium. And even you will you will um, correct me if I'm wrong. 
I think in Belgium, the main prevention idea is still socially, uh, uh, so the, the, the prevention based on well-being and promoting uh, uh, the, the inclusion of the people who are in trouble and so on. That's still the main tradition, I would say. Is that not so? It is the main tradition. I can for not speak of uh, the the history, but at least um, when I was a student, and I was in the 1990s, there was hardly spoken about uh, situation of crime prevention, except within the the police. And so there were also police uh, students who studied yeah, criminology. Many, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the only thing. Uh, neighborhood Watch came later, but it was always social prevention uh, the prevention of uh, structural poverty and the inclusion in school school prevention um delinquency prevention at school trying to uh, also avoid problems of, of abuse uh, of drugs and trying to um avoid people falling out of the system i think this is the one of the key issues i would say in in belgium the importance of the the social context be it in primary secondary or tertiary prevention but this social aspect rather um i mean in contrast to the the situational one although nowadays i have the feeling that we speak of integrated prevention but i wouldn't say that situational prevention is our specialty between brackets yeah one of the advantages of situational prevention is of course also that it is relatively easy to implement it's well delimited so methodologically it's easy to implement it's easy also to to see the results on short term whereas if you work to social prevention in fact it is much more vague and much more difficult to measure what the impact is on on what term eh? if you try to avoid the dropout of school of a of a, a young boy, uh, well, yeah, maybe we never can prove that if we did not help that boy with his schoolwork, he would have become a criminal. We can never prove that. Yeah? Whereas in situational prevention, you can really have figures in that neighborhood where you install your your video cameras uh, and so on. Uh, you you can measure. How many com complaints are lodged at the police and so on? Eh? So, and I think that is that's an advantage, of course, of situational prevention. They say then there is some displacement to other neighborhoods, maybe, but that is when you do not measure that at the same <laughs> rigor as you measured it in the. Well, you can never measure the whole thing, eh? if you have situational prevention in Schaarbeek, you do not know what happens in Molenbeek uh -huh. and in Uckel and in Brussels city and so on. You, you cannot. Eh? Schaarbeek is, of course, much more than one neighborhood. <laughs> you cannot. Eh? Well, you mentioned an interesting problem and that is the, the short term versus the long term uh, effects. And I think that's the, tr the tragedy of social prevention. Our politicians think in terms of short-term solutions, so um, it will never be possible. And I think it's also problematic with regard to research. I mean, if you want to do longitudinal research on social prevention and how youth develops uh, successfully, it's very difficult to obtain resources because of the, the long term. Also, some kind of disadvantage in, in 
relation to the Anglo-Saxon huge longitudinal studies, which we don't have in, in Belgium, I think. We don't need it, but okay. That's another. <laughs> that's another. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll forget, but uh, maybe that's another subject. Yeah, but I, I would, what proves for me, leaving uh, and Marcelo, that the option for a, a policy in strategy, in prevention, or to, it is also a matter of choice. Mm -hmm. A matter of, uh, I hesitate to say the word, a matter of ideology. We opted for social prevention because we think it's right. We owe something to these people who are marginalized. And we cannot put them, uh, to cannot marginalize them further. And we hope that it has a good effect. And sometimes we can show that it has some effect, but there is also a choice. And I think it's in so criminology in general is imbued, penetrated by beliefs. We have to, and I think that it's very important that we make that explicit, what we believe. Um, in social science and certainly in criminology, we cannot be objective. We are not objective. What we can try to do is, from our standpoint, develop a view, research, uh, doing, trying to do as methodologically sound empirical research, maybe develop some or support some policy developments. But all is, in fact, a matter of belief, of ideology. I, it's not coincidental that I, I'm so fond of restorative justice and I'm not fond of a, a punitive populism. Uh, it's not only because of effic efficacy of not, it's also because it is simply not a good thing, morally, morally. I must admit that. Uh, and it's also those who say that they are pure objective and they do not, do not want to do, uh, th that they want to stay out of politics. That is a political choice to uh, uh, accept and to uh, um, work within the political system that is there and without uh, within what the authorities have decided uh, and so on. That's a political choice. Uh, which is, which is respect, we respectable, you know, uh, yeah, and this prevention strategy is also. So I I think that to come back to that situation, prevention can have really effects, and we should not be too naive. Uh, I believe that, but if you would do that only that, it would not be enough. Uh, uh, Social prevention is more difficult, is working on the more longer term, uh, uh, but still uh, very important to do. Because my belief is that the quality of our social life in general uh, depends on the quality how we relate to each other. Uh, and all policy regarding crime, injustice, and safety, and so on, must rest upon a, a bottom of respect, 
inclusion, uh, uh, trying to uh, promote well-being. And then, of course, there will, <laughs> despite all we do there, there will crime, crime will, will exist. And then we will find, we need to find some things uh, 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 to defend us against these, these, these acts. But we cannot exclude this. It is, uh, well, yeah. No, but perhaps the key, no, it's good, but perhaps the key is to combine things yeah. in, uh, in a meaningful way. But uh, I remember at the ESC in Helsinki, I remember, um, well, Niels Christie, but especially Jog Young being very derogative about, um, especially uh, Jog Young. Uh, Neil, Niels was doing his uh, stuff of a crime does not exist. <laughs> But um, Jog was more on the line of, um, yeah, really aggressing directly, making derogatory remarks about the research of, of Marcus Felson. That was really, no, yeah. yeah. But yeah, finding the, the right, post, the, the, the la voie du milieu, eh? uh, yeah. <laughs> that would be the solution. And, yes. and another thing that you mentioned, because we were interested in these changes in the field, then we can talk about how crime changed also during your uh, your lifespan, but also you mentioned the arrival of restorative justice in the field of criminology, and how did that happen? Well, I can all, only speak uh, of my personal adventure, if you may say so. Um, you may know that I was, in my younger years, an enthusiast critic of the juvenile justice approach, protective youth protection, uh, uh, I thought not only that it was not efficient, but also that it neglected, in fact, the rights of the juveniles and also of the families and so on. They were approached as problem and so on. And I was very critical about it, but I did not find, I did not want to return to the punitive. So I was a bit stuck myself. And then, I think it was in 84, uh, there was an, in, in Malin, a youth court judge, Jan Peters. Do you remember this man? Have you ever heard of him? No. Yeah, you know, Jan Peters. Because you mentioned, you talked to me about him. <laughs> ah, <okay. laughs> oh, yeah, you have good memory there. <laughs> Jan Peters, he imposed to juveniles who committed serious things, community service, instead of sending the, them to a closed facility. He said, you can, you can choose, or you go to a closed facility, Mo, uh, Mo in Belgium, was that, or uh, you do 80 hours or in the weekends and so, or more work in the green uh, service of the village or the, the, the city or the, the municipality where you work at uh, where you have committed your and he explicitly said you do this because you have to compensate something you have done something to society you have to give something back that was his reasoning and when i heard that i was thinking well there is something reparation reparative and I thought that this would be a third way, not treat, not punish, but really uh, putting 
the juvenile offenders before their responsibility. They have done it and they should not have done it, but the response should be more constructive. So they could come, well, okay. And then it was in 91 that I, for the first time, had this conference and I heard for the first time also the phrase in English, restorative justice. In, uh, in Ilchiaco, I have mentioned that every time when I speak of my personal history and restorative justice, Ilchiaco is for my really an epiphany. We were 30 researchers from all over the world, Americans, uh, Turkish, uh, Europeans, of course, Canadians, uh, uh, and so on. And it was like a kind of conspiracy. We would change, we would change the way justice is done. And since then I have then written my first article in, uh, in uh, Panopticon. I think it was still in 91, I was so enthusiastic what I've learned there. Um, um, and I spoke and uh, for the first time, and I think it's the first time that I used this Dutch word herstelrecht to translate restorative justice. So in, in Dutch, Marcel, you have strafrecht or herstelrecht. Strafrecht is justice that punishes, and herstelrecht would be justice that restores, that repairs. Eh? So, and since then, the word herstelrecht has been, has had this career in, in, in the Dutch language. Um, and I was working at that, and so I've, I was looking for a kind of third way for the juvenile justice system. In the meantime, Tony Peters was working uh, um, three doors further in the same corridor. He was working in victimology and in penology. And he uh, had, he found that mediation would be interesting for the victims. But we didn't know of each other. So it's only after a few years that we fully realized that, in fact, we were working on more or less the same ideas, uh, uh, looking for ways how to, well, how uh, a crime could be responded to by a reparative intervention. And when we both retired, Ivo Artsen succeeded us both in the field of restorative justice. In the meantime, I think um, uh, the Minister of Justice at that time was Stéphane de Klerk in Leuven, in Belgium. And he was, a, he, he was on our benches as a, a student in law, but also in criminology. So he was very open to that idea. Um, we wrote on his, on his uh, uh, request a report on how I would see the change of the juvenile justice system in Belgium to become more restorative. Uh, and it was well accepted, but then when he was working at it, he had to resign because Dutroux escaped. <laughs> and so the thing we had to, the whole thing had to be done again, but also, when um, 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 Lorette Onkelings, as a minister uh, from the Socialist Party, became Minister of Justice, she was still interested very much. So I was in, in many commissions. Uh, and the, the, the advantage was, 
I think that first I could, well, really think politically. So how can we in practice implement it and so on? And that was for me also very fruitful for my theoretical work. I think I'm one of the uh, restorative justice scholars who is the most uh, very well aware that restorative justice and criminal justice, they have to find each other. They need to find a balance. As many restorative justice scholars are, in fact, I'm not at all an abolitionist, for example. Huh? Whereas the, the original literature in restorative justice was in fact, was in fact, uh, abolitionist. I'm, I've never been, because I was immediately, I had this, I had this, this um, provocation from the minister, if you could say, at his commission, how would you do it? Huh? So and it was very interesting, and I think that this was very fruitful to me. It was also very fruitful for Tony, and then later also for Ivo, because also in prisons and in the penal law change, it is not at all how we finally would ideally see it. But I think that for the moment, Belgium, certainly on the European continent, is one of the most restorative justice-oriented countries uh, on the European con continent, maybe the most. How can you measure that? Huh? Uh, um, certainly. Yeah. Um, I agree, I agree. It's difficult to measure, but we have the family justice centers in Belgium and Antoine. Yeah. We have we have there's so much uh, here in Belgium. And I know that for example in Switzerland there are also here and there things going on, but on a much slower way, that's certainly it makes me to think just what and then I see Marcelo you want makes me to in Belgium. We had some influence. The academic world has influence on policy because we are a small country. We know each other. Uh, I think maybe also in Switzerland and in Holland. We meet each other, not only in official commissions, but also in reception uh, and so on. And many of the, of the policymakers are former students of us. Uh, exactly. Uh, and that that makes it easier. I, I fully agree. That I think that changes everything. Switzerland is also a small country. The issue of the languages divides a little bit, and um, yeah. and criminology is strong in the French-speaking part, which is the minority region. That one of uh, yeah. of course, Italian. It, the Italian speaking part is even uh, smaller but um you have more influence with uh, with german probably but the fact that people know each other you can see it also you mentioned that you were in several commissions this is also the case here and um in some changes when the criminal code was changed in 2007 you could see quotes from the literature eh? then when they went back in 2017 and uh, that was more um more close to maybe punitive populism. We will have a, a PhD dissertation on that topic next week. Maybe I will send it to you later, <laughs> Lode, yeah, 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 yeah. if you have the time. But yeah. I think that's that's uh, important, the fact that it's a small country. And then, as you mentioned, 
people tell you, okay, how, how would you do it? Because it's very easy to say, yeah, let's abolish the prison system or now let's abolish the police. <laughs> and, and I think that when, when one, but of course everybody's free to do whatever they want. Um, when you go with this kind of discourse um, to the media and you say, well, we're going to abolish the police or we're going to abolish the prison, you, you lose a lot of credibility and then the field also resents this because uh, it's important. I mean, in the current state of affairs, in the current state of humanity, this is impossible. So if you want to help developing things, to improve things, then you must be somehow near the what's going on. And I think that is a change from the, the mm -hmm. say, the critical criminologists of the 70s that were criticizing, criticizing. Then there is some change in some of them. Uh, that go to something more concrete. And I think probably this is related to restorative justice. No? Yeah, but in my view, there is one fundamental persisting problem. That is criminal policy, certainly for the moment, and crime, the experience of crime and dealing with crime is basically an emotional thing. Punitive populism is is well is flourishing on this emotion, whereas criminology, as a science, tries to be rational. Um, and I think there is an, a permanent friction between both. And policymakers who have been studying criminology, uh, law, and criminology. They are convinced when they leave the benches, and but then when they become politically responsible, they they see that it is that they are under pressure of the punitive populism, and I think that's a permanent tension, which is really which we we which we cannot avoid. Even if there were less, there was less punitive populism. Still, if you you or I were confronted with a crime, our first reaction would be emotional. Maybe we have, I have, uh, uh, it was emotional. I was in the, uh, uh, absolutely. Uh, if I would see it <laughs> later, we calm down, we are criminologists, so we, we can reflect uh, uh, and so on. Uh, but the public that, that is less informed, they remains. And then you have what, what was it, uh, Bert Kuczynski, who spoke in terms of a crime carousel. The emotion of the crime, media who blow up, still the, the emotion, and then even also the profession of the criminal justice, police and so on, they try to stir up this because they have interest in more attention for crime. For example, in Antwerp, you see now very well how some, uh, very recently, they stir up the problem of the drugs because then they can get more funding and more, more staff and more to, to fight against the drugs that, will, that threatens us all. And so there is an idea that all the time crime is raising, 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 raising. And the, politicals, the politicians, for a part, they can try to be reasonable, but they are under pressure. They cannot really uh, counter that. And then we criminologists, fortunately, fortunately, 
we are not dependent on, on uh, media and so on. We can try to give some counter ideas, but it's very difficult. It's very difficult. I think that the, uh, the, the, the tension between criminology and criminal policy should be given more attention by the current criminologists. What is happening there? What is our role? Where are our possible entrances? Um, um, more than just a, a report on that's how policy works. Eh? Uh, uh, criminology and criminal policy. While I'm speaking now, Lieven, Marcelo, please, <laughs> in, the, in the curriculum, a special course about criminology and criminal policy. How does that interact? Where can you work together? What's, what is the, the mission for criminologists and so on? I think that is a very important thing because intrinsically we are, we are not uh, in the same carousel. Eh? Yeah. We have to take distance from that and try to uh, stop it or at least to refrain it. Yeah, I remember when we were in, in Lithuania, the Minister of Justice was a former student of uh, Alexandras Dobrininas. And this is something we interviewed Alexandra, but we didn't talk about that, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, the smaller the country, uh, the easier it is to get um, maybe more influence because you have these former students. So, yes, we have more students in the classroom that makes classes more difficult, but then the network is uh, larger. I, I, I don't know how you see this, but I think that one thing that is missing also in the, because as you mentioned, there is a lot of ideology and each of us has a way of um, looking at the world, and it's good to mention it. I think that our knowledge of economy is very primitive, you know, especially when I hear some explanations. I mean, the, the descriptions of Marx were good for the 19th century, but we're in the 21st century. And I think that this, if we were a little bit more aware of how the economy works, uh, because for to do uh, restorative justice or to introduce new uh, kind of punishment, you need uh, a budget. Eh? Perhaps we could also be a little bit more effective. Of course, you can say they are giving the Nobel Prize to one that says, let's privatize everything, and the Nobel Prize also to one that says, let's put <laughs> everything in the hands of the state. So it's also difficult. But I, I think that maybe also a way of having more influence could be to know a little bit how, how the system works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But still, criminal policy is is certainly public policy, and is very vulnerable for uh, elections and politicians who are launching themselves, who are working in that field, have to be very, very careful because it is one of the most sensitive subjects. I would say that and immigration which is sometimes linked, crime and immigration, and they are very vulnerable. So they need especially ways to convince the people who will vote for them or not, uh, that an other approach than the purely punitive approach is not only possible, but even preferable. Uh, uh, 
I say the purely punitive. I know that sometimes punishment and locking in people will always be necessary. I'm not naive on that, of course, but there are other priorities in the policy. And we need to find a way to, to communicate that in a convincing way. You know, the, the, some people have been thinking about it, but not enough, I would say. Uh, um, even I see that you are about to say something very important. Oh, very not bad. important. I mean, but <laughs> I think you raise an interesting, very difficult issue. I mean, the relationship between uh, criminologists and, and criminal policy. Criminologists need need to speak out. Absolutely agree. But if you look at the context of today, the polarization. I think many young criminologists do not want to be involved in this what you call carousel of, of uh, extremism and, and where um, criminologists are accused of, of being uh, or attacked on social media and, and I mean it's a very complicated situation nowadays uh, while it is much more needed to have this nuanced answer because if you look at longitudinal studies there is um, a very strong relationship between for example economic inequality and extreme voting so i think it's a very important issue the question is indeed how to discuss this and how to learn to discuss these sensitive issues with each other again without yeah. getting into this polarized uh, situation where you end up if you try to um, give expression to your views on social media and so on this has been a very, very tough issue. I, I, I find it very difficult myself, to be honest. It was easier yeah. 20 years ago to discuss these things um, with, with policymakers, and the discussion was much more polite between brackets. That's true. That is true. Uh, <clears throat> but that's, that's part of the general hardening of social life. Eh? Yeah. It's yeah. not only on the social media, but also in business, um, in sports, uh, uh, it's everywhere, um, and it ends in a in a Trump case, or a, uh, yeah, you have Trump and and the other, uh, you have a Putin, uh, uh, and these guys who then uh, I don't know, they bark them away through life, eh? mm -hmm. um, and that's thinking. Uh, a big problem because as social scientists trying to be polite we are anyhow softies and i'm a softie i'm proud to be uh, <laughs> uh, but we are uh, we try to be reasonable we try to understand we but it's it's in my nature i cannot do elsewhere elsewise it's not possible for me, no? but sometimes uh, I, I I wish I was a bit more a barking dog. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I know a very good barking criminologist, but I will, I will not name him. But <laughs> I think leaving you know already who I am. And and so. Yeah, you mentioned, okay, we discussed uh, um, how the, the field changed, how the, the teaching of criminology, but also 
the subject, the basic subject of a study, let's say crime, eh? how did it change? I mean, the, the kind of crimes that were common when you started um, uh, studying criminology and the crimes nowadays and the, and the authors of these crimes, and perhaps the victims, how did yeah. it change? I, I would say yes. Uh, that when I began, yes, uh, we all knew that we were the, the 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 young people from the marginalized or marginal neighborhoods in marginal families. We knew that bad kids living in bad situation, bad families in bad neighborhoods, did bad things to us, the good ones. That was, and in fact, there is still a whole line in criminology which still moves on in that in that sense uh, uh, but of course the internationalization the social media uh, and the possibilities there are there uh, make totally business crime internationalization uh, we are confronted with totally new forms of crime that sir that transcend the possibilities or the potentials of the local governments and local police officers that is so uh, that are maybe less visible and less short-term threatening to our individual lives uh, uh, but that of course that much more threat threatening to our society as such and the, the way how the societies are organized, democracy, but also corruption and so on. And that's, that's a total new given for criminologists. I am, I am as the, an older criminologist, I am not prepared to deal with that, to say many sensible things about that. I'm not... I look then at my younger colleagues, like, for example, Letizia Pauli in Leuven, uh, who is becoming a great specialist in international organized crimes and, and so on, and many others, of course, but I know her very well. I, I have regu regularly uh, contacts and discussions with her. But that's new. But as a consequence, also the programs and the criminologists, the modern criminologists, yeah, should be formed otherwise. Um, another development, which is more close to the traditional thing, is that I wonder whether social exclusion, societal vulnerability, is still the main problem in our uh, regarding youth delinquency. I wonder. Maybe it's more young people being spoiled, material, they, they have everything. Nothing has been uh, blocked to them uh, and they cannot accept any refusal. They cannot accept any structure. Uh, I think that is, I don't know the English word, the verwenning. Can you translate that to Marcelo? Uh, yeah, being spoiled. La generation yeah, 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 and I think this is regarding juveniles, maybe a more important thing 
than uh, currently social exclusion. Uh, um, also in these so-called marginalized youth, social provisions make that they have they have their life, but that they go to steal and so on because they have to to show on everybody what they have, what they can do. Uh, the, 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 the Les enfants gâtés. You know, Marcelo, it's an old article by Christian de Beust. You remember Christian de Beust? Yes, he was yes. older than I was. And I found an old article written by him, Les enfants gâtés, in the Revue de droit pénal et de criminologie. The older, and it was, it was an eye-opener. Was very psychological. Eh? It was an absolutely what, and he together with another uh, another psychologist, I think, they they just described how they treated in a kind of children's clinic des enfants gâtés, des enfants gâtés who committed already offences. Eh? And I think this is a, a, a very important thing uh, for the future. We have to take care of that. It's not for me anymore. <laughs> it's it's for the others. <laughs> but because the social exclusion issue, it's still very important for policy. But I think that for research, we know it. Um, it's variations on the same team uh, all the time. Maybe we sh we could leave that. Well, of course, we, yeah, I see, leave now, you are skeptical about what I'm saying there. But my, my first opinion would be another another uh, research saying that, you know, the bad kids living yeah. in the world. Uh, yes, another one. Uh, uh, you know, for Chris Eliards and Ido Weyers, they have written... A volume, well, several volumes on youth delinquents in Dutch. Mm -hmm. And a few years ago, they, and in that article, in, in that volume, Nicole Vettenberg and me, we wrote together an article, Maatschappelijke Kwetsbaarheid. And a few years ago, they planned, and they have also edited, a second edition, a new version. So Nicole and I, we were invited to review our own article and to adapt it to, to update it so we nicola we, we jumped into the literature and so on we did find new things uh -huh. yeah other wordings yes in instead of hanging around on the streets that is now they speak of uh, unstructured socialization that is other words but uh, uh -huh. what actually happens was we didn't find really new things, um, so we we did not change. What we we wrote that among others that we were surprised to see that. I agree. I wasn't skeptical about this. I was uh, a little bit more um, skeptical about the the fact that while criminologists know so much about the problems of exclusion, that policymakers just don't do more about it because it has been proven a thousand times. Absolutely. Yeah, but that's true. We know it, but they don't apply it, implement it. They don't draw the right conclusions, the policy make. That's absolutely, absolutely. Uh, but, it, it, but it is not because we have said it hundred times that it is not true. Uh -huh. 
Sometimes they say, oh, professor, we, we know, we, we know that you have said it 20 years ago. We said, yes, but it's not because I said it 20 years ago that it is not true. Mm -hmm. huh? But uh, don't you think it could also be our fault because we did not come with, uh, with solutions. I mean, we identified the problem, but perhaps we did not arrive with a, a clear program that could be evaluated and then measure and see the results, even if it's in a long term. I mean, there are ways uh, you have a monitor uh, in uh, in Belgium, so you could you could you can follow throughout time. I don't know. I have the impression that sometimes I mean it's easy to criticize, and uh, and then you, you can take that what has been done and say it with new words, and it sounds nice. But um, you are a you are an empirical criminology, but many. Many of our colleagues, uh, well, with this idea that you should not collaborate with <laughs> with um, uh, power, and many of our colleagues did not enter, did not enter really the um, the practical things. No, we have. I think uh, we were involved in many many practical things all the time. Nicole. Yeah. Who was one of my collaborators, Ingrid van Welzen, is with football hooligan, hooliganism and so on. So I think, no, no, you, you cannot say that we did not draw our own conclusions for practical, for practicalities and for policy and so on. But what you see is that sometimes the form, the, the words remain, but the content is changed completely. Uh, uh, the word prevention, uh, integrative prevention, for example. Sometimes you see that when, as an academic, you are still uh, in power together with practitioners, and you still can uh, do the follow-up, close follow-up, it's okay, it works. It works in Antwerp, and it works in, in, in a neighborhood in Brussels, uh, uh, and so on. But yeah, as an academic, after a while, you have other, <laughs> you start another project that you say, okay, it's really, and then it's, it becomes so fluid and uh, the, the words, the, 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 the name remains the same, but the, the, the theoretical and practical accuracy, if I may say, disappears. And sometimes the local uh, mayor is interested that he he wants to show up uh, so that there's some pictures in the in the newspaper that he was there, but that's it. Eh? Mm. Uh, very often such things happen. Also, I think the structure of the of the general population has changed. I mean, uh, a difficult area forty years ago or 50 years ago, had a different uh, ethnic composition eh, than, no. than nowadays. That is absolutely true. Um, and there, as a criminologist, but of course, the, the problem of the ethnic composition of a neighborhood is, goes far wider than only criminology. We have to focus not only on the population group, but also the native population, if I may say so. Yeah. It is an interaction, and the policies, uh, and so on. 
what we have done in the time, and Liev knows that, when our theory of societal vulnerability, we have tried to investigate in what sense that would also apply to the, at that time, up, uh, incoming Moroccans and uh, Turkish uh, young lads. Well, yeah, yeah. Is that, has that ever been implemented? I, I don't know. I know that some, Eutemarge, for example, this big organization for juveniles at a the time, they used societal vulnerability as this theoretical uh, uh, structure. Huh? But I didn't follow up it anymore. So I, but I, I did, and it's still used um, among practitioners of social prevention because it's a broad network, and while the ethnic composition and the, the young adolescents change, the problems remain the same of exclusion, inclusion. So it is still used as a framework to critically look at who is uh, getting only the, I mean, the, the positive effects of the system and who gets the negative effects. So it is still, you. I think it's still a very important issue. It, it just has gotten new dimensions, I would say. Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. But this is, of course, an additional problem. This, uh, this diff, well, this variation in the compositions, a new dimension, right, right. Uh, the world is is changing all the time, of course. Uh, uh, yeah, but the last forty years, I mean, your generation, the 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 amount of change, even even our generation, we are younger than you, but. Um, even for us, it has been incredible. But for you, I mean, when you started, it was the, the Cold War. <laughs> the, the Europe yeah. was divided. Um, yeah. yeah, but the Cold War, it, I was not suffering from the Cold War. In, on the contrary, I would say, I was enjoying the post-war the post enthusiasm. We are going to rebuild Europe. And the world and the potential of the world were endless. I strongly believed, well, no, well, in, in the media, it was believed that in the year 2000, there will be flying uh, roasted chickens, uh, to, so to say. Uh, everything would have been possible in the year 2000. We have, uh, and the, 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 the resources of the planet were un we could use the planet like we wished, not any problem. Uh, uh, that's how I began. Uh, it's only by the, uh, yeah, the Club of Rome, for example, uh, and the first oil crisis in the 84, I think, was that? 72, the, 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 the 72, 72-73, the first uh, petrol crisis. I don't remember that. Anymore. When, when really, the, because if you see the, stat, the statistics of unemployment yeah. in uh, Western Europe until yeah. 73, it was non-existent. Eh? I don't know. Of there was no unemployment almost. No, no. no. So it was not, we were not uh, oppressed by the idea of the Cold War. We would win the Russians. Well, no problem. We are now a bit less optimistic about that, but still, in fact, what... <laughs> concerns that. <laughs> yeah, but you also saw the construction of, of the European Union. For example, it's all, there was a great optimism at that time. Yeah. Also, I was a professor because I never had to fill out 
any form to become a, an assistant or to become a professor. Any, I have never to apply for anything. I just was found. Can you please? Are you still free? Do you understand? Do you believe that? Yeah, different times. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and how do you see the the, the future? Well, my future is short now. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, there are a few things. There are a few things. Um, but of course, we have already touched a few things. That is indeed, the world is changing, and all the time, criminology will have to change also. I think also that uh, one of the great issues for academic criminology, academic criminology, is uh, to keep its autonomy as is academic science. That is, does not mean that also applied criminology in the service of authorities is very respectable. Doesn't mean, but also this, uh, this applied criminology has to be based on more fundamental autonomous research. Uh, and as the safety and unsafety issues are politically very important, the pressure on criminologists to give up some autonomy uh, is high, I would say, uh, uh, more than I had. And I feel it again, I, I discussed also with some young colleagues sometimes, and they say it literally, eh? it's not easy because the university insists that they bring in money from research, but to bring this money in, they have to, let's say, to please the money givers. And in criminology, part of the money givers are politicians, are the authorities. Eh? And they give their money for very particular short-term research. I have done that as well, but because I was a long time researcher and because I had many projects at a certain moment, I, in my last years, I had always between 12 and 15 researchers. Uh, I could, let's say, compose a kind of patrimony. All it came all together and we had some, so the idea of radical prevention, societal vulnerability, restorative justice, uh, these ideas that now, well, still are there, it is thanks to all these little projects, but also because we had this, uh, let's say, critical minimum. And I'm not sure that this uh, will still be possible. I think that's one of the great challenges for academic criminology to stay being academic. Uh, and to get funds also via the scientific funding uh, channels and so on. Um, but even there, because if I am um, well uh, informed, one of the criteria for the scientific funds currently is also the social utility. Is that so? Yeah, that is increasingly important. 
who translates that and who would say what is so socially useful uh, um, I think it's academically and sociologically very useful to do research on the societal backgrounds of the current punitive populism that will not be through positive methodology but by others I think it's very important and socially very and democratically very relevant but I think if you would compete with such a project with a project about the internal regimes in a closed facility for juveniles uh, you know what will get the preference eh? what will be get priority um, so I think uh, that that's one of the issues for the for the future then of course the internationalization um, criminology and public policy in its in its explicit relation maybe if Europe would also address the field our field well, the European justice system uh, and so on which is about to come I think our impact will be lesser now we I we could well we can you can address your minister uh, of justice and the, the internal affairs and the welfare minister they are all so I will not say at hand but they are at a reasonable distance but if it will be in Europe it will be much more difficult I have written that and when I've got my European criminology award in my speech I had three criteria for good criminology and I think and I think this is still important that is autonomy indeed but also methodology of course that's the plus value of all intellectual activity that claims to be scientific that is methodology huh? to keep one's own intuitions under control <laughs> to canalize one's own intuitions and desires and wishes on the one hand and to make what you find really controllable, checkable for the others so that you, you produce shared knowledge, meaning not objective knowledge, but knowledge that is accepted also by as much as possible others as knowledge. And the advantage of such a knowledge Shared knowledge is that this is a platform for policy and also for further research. And the methodology is, is, is the basis. So that's the, the, that's the second criteria, autonomy, methodology. And the third is responsibility. We are, maybe you remember that, uh, I compared criminal, well, scientists to chickens. We do not lay an egg. Uh, and we do not leave it to the others to do with that egg what they want to. We must be aware that what we find and what we say and what we publish, that it matters, that it is used by others. And we must be aware of that. So that's my third criterion. And I think if you can keep these three criteria well, we can go a long way. Lode, I was just checking 
because I couldn't remember if you got if you got the award in 2007 or 2008. It was 2008. 2008. Yeah, I remember the speech. It was published in the newsletter. Eh? Yes. Ah, okay, okay, yes, okay. So, yes, yes. so that our listeners can find it, um, yeah, the newsletter right. of the European uh, Society of Criminology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because yeah. I enjoyed it. Uh, was Edinburgh, I think. Yeah, it was in Edinburgh. Edinburgh yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I liked it. Yes, yes. It was a, a still one of the highlights of my life. Well, of my professional life, certainly. I have other highlights in my personal life. I must say, children, <laughs> children grandchildren. <laughs> yeah. And so I think we we cover more or less all this. Uh, especially, it was. I think it was very interesting to see this, um, all these developments eh, that that you saw through uh, through your uh, through your yeah. life, and um, yeah, we also talk about the about the future. I think we we cover most of the things we wanted to talk about. I don't know, even if there is something else. You you gave us a lot of a lot of food for thought, eh? yeah, because there are a lot of things uh, about the future. This is very interesting. Um, I think our listeners will also enjoy this because uh, that's, of course, our job. Thinking, uh, not just doing without thinking, but thinking before doing. Uh, we, we covered all the topics we, we usually discuss. So um, We are social scientists. We have great responsibility, in fact. We are, we are, we are, we are privileged, in fact. Uh, <laughs> we, are, we have a, a reasonable payment. It could be better, of course, I know. But reasonably paid uh, uh, we have a great freedom in deciding and we have of course many obligations also uh, so we have to give something back everybody on his own way of course uh, 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 but that's a responsibility i would say really yeah that's a good epilogue i think for the for uh, for our talk um Really, Lodo, it was it was a pleasure to discuss with you and to. It was a pleasure speaking with you yeah. and being challenged. Yes. And yeah. I, it, really, really nice. Thank you yeah. very much. Thank you very much, you. Thank and you very much. Bye. Let's keep in touch. <laughs> yes. Bye. Thank you. Bye. 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 Thank you for following Liven and Marcelo's Criminology Podcast. This podcast is edited by Eduardo Coco from the University of Lausanne. Our theme song is Seagull's Night, Noche de Gaviotas, composed by Gustavo Cantero, arranged by Tato Germano, and played by Tato and Gustavo with the voices of Sasha Conte and Alejandro Turco Gujot. Your host, Arliven Pauvels from Ghent University, Belgium, and Marcelo Aevi from the University of Lausanne, Switzerland. Cheers, and see you soon.